Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by radio host Emily Reese and myself, Sommelier Joe Mott. Today we're talking about dead giveaways. I'm going to talk about a dead giveaway for one of the most famous symphony orchestras in the world. And I am going to talk about dead giveaways regarding how to find great wine, awesome wine, not maybe the angle you would think. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution. We've made tiers for you, so it'll make it super easy for you to decide how you want to support Scores and Pours. You can find out more on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash scoresandpours. On that same website, you'll find a wine list, a playlist uh, for the show, and you'll also find a link to be able to purchase some awesome merch, hoodies Mm -hmm. and tees. We want to... Thank all of our existing patrons. We couldn't do this without you. What's up, Emily Reese? Well, hi, Jill Mott. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. How how are you feeling on this? uh, I know this is... We always record someone in advance of of things so it's interesting that i it's election week yeah and it even is. though we're gonna release this a few weeks from now mm-hmm. how are you feeling today i feel like if we release this in three weeks or four weeks we still probably won't know okay <laughs> <laughs> no i don't know i i feel um you know I just we'll see that's that's how i feel <laughs> okay anxious along with the rest of the world i hear you yeah um well on this episode of scores and pours we wanted to talk about we actually concocted this idea when we were in california mm-hmm. and we were both talking about jazz i think because emily had this great idea like she's like jill do you ever like aren't there like dead giveaways in wine and i was like what what do you mean? She's like, like you taste something and it's a dead giveaway that it's that. And I'm like, yes. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, cause there's dead giveaways in like when there's these brass sections and this blah, blah, blah. And so (laughs) when we started to put together like a format for the show and I, and like, you know, solidify some ideas. We were like, what were we talking about? (laughs) Cause, cause I, there is really, there's no way that you can talk about like, oh, that's a dead giveaway that that is a, Poligny Montrachet Chardonnay from Burgundy because there are people in other parts of the world that can execute and make a wine that's very, very, very similar. Mm-hmm. Yes, terroir always matters. Yeah. But nowadays with global warming and people traveling and learning all over the world, mm-hmm. um, that is interesting. Yeah. Definitely. A, a, or like a region. Oh, yeah, that's definitely Switzerland. Yeah. It's definitely Swiss white. It's like, well, no, because a lot of places can mimic that, like, really light, neutral, stone fruity quality. So it's hard to have a dead. So I decided to go a different angle, which I'll tell you about in a moment with dead giveaways. Amazing. Yeah. That will benefit all. Yeah. I mean, we racked our brains for days trying to remember what I had said. (laughs) Like, what the hell was I talking? I have no idea to this day what I was talking about. And so it took me a little bit to kind of come up with something that wasn't repeating myself in the past or or something about, you know, dead giveaways for eras, because we talk a lot about how you can tell Baroque music is Baroque or 20th century or whatnot. You decided on something that was actually brilliant. It was really, it's going to be really fun because we've never talked about this group before. No. And I'm really excited about it. I mean, in, in the United States... Uh, there are, you know, kind of the big five, quote unquote, 
symphony orchestras. And one of those is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And a trademark of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra is their brass. And there are recordings where it's, I mean, even as a brass player, I can say it it's kind of gratuitous. Well, and you were in, but how we settled, I think, on the Chicago Symphony Orchestra was like, Emily was like, the Chicago Symphony or- Orchestra is dope. Yeah. They're amazing. Yeah, they're and amazing. And so, like, you, a dead giveaway that it's going to be a great recording is if you get something from the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. And then a hallmark yeah. of them is the brass section. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I have a lot of friends that ask me, thinking that I'm, have your musical brain and they're like yeah so jill like what what's the best recording of this or that mm-hmm, that symphony mm-hmm. or this symphony and something that i could tell them mm-hmm. now knowing that having had the conversation with you is see if the chicago symphony orchestra <laughs> has done it because that's a dead giveaway that it's going to be flipping awesome yeah i mean they are awesome and in fact uh one of their conductors um has more grammys than anyone uh, the most, the most Grammys, pop music aside, classical, jet, the like all those are included. He's got the he's highest. He's got the most. He has thirty-one. Nobody else has thirty-one. Holy cow! Um, What's the, his name? His name is Georg Schulte, George Schulte, and we're going to okay. talk about him because he's the reason the brass is Whoa. the way they are, and and the ensemble itself has sixty-two Grammys. The Chicago Symphony yeah. Orchestra has 62 Grammys. That's ridiculous. Which is crazy. So we'll hear them, and uh, it's it's remarkable. We'll ta- I'll give you a little background on the orchestra themselves, and then I'll talk to you more about the brass section in particular. Yeah. They're almost, I think they're older than the Spanish flu. <laughs> like, they've been around forever. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. They, they are one of the oldest in the country, yes. Well, I, I'm talking about dead giveaways. Instead of choosing a grape, like, what's the dead giveaway that it's a Chardonnay? Well, we could blow holes through that all day. This region, same thing. I decided to focus on something that I think all of our listeners could really benefit from. I often get, how do you know a wine is good? How do you know a producer, grape, whatever? And we there has been on scores and pours. I've done some radio broadcasts before that, you know, like I talk about knowing your importer because your importer is sort of like, you know, when you go to the store and you buy a loaf of bread, there are 25 loaves, types of loaves of bread if you buy like kind of commercial sliced bread, but you know that one brand that you like, right? And the minute you learn your importer is like learning a brand you like of some sort of food, right? And so, um, and I don't like to use that word brand actually because the, what I'm going to talk about is anti-brand. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about uh, importer, two importers, one for beer and one for wine. Uh, the importer I'm going to talk about is they're called Louis Dresner, and they are a dead giveaway that what is in the bottle is what it says it is, and it's made with the utmost attention to quality to health both in the vineyard and in the cellar. And it's just unlike a lot of other entities right now in importing and distributing of wine, there's a lot of dogma. And dogma ends up getting you into a corner, right? Whatever in life. And so I just am going to talk a little bit about uh, Louis Dresner, past, present, future, um, the manifesto. We're going to, of course, taste one of the wines uh, in the Louis Dresner book. It's going to be good. Sweet. 
Well, do you want to hear a little bit more about the orchestra and then we'll hear the music, some music? Yeah, let's yeah. do that. All right. So as Jill mentioned, the Chicago Symphony has been around for a long, long time. Uh, they uh, were founded in 1891. It was not called the Chicago Symphony Orchestra at the time. That that name came a couple decades later, but for all intents and purposes, CSO, right? Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Also, uh, many symphony orchestras around the world, you know, they perform sans COVID, right? So in a typical year, they'd have a season that runs basically about a school year, right? Mm -hmm. From September to like, say, May. That would be their regular season or their subscription series or whatever they choose to call it. And then over the summer, a lot of symphonies and and orchestras have summer festivals or summer series or summer concerts, Mm -hmm. usually at a different location than their normal home. Now, the symphony in Chicago plays uh, at Ravinia, which is the oldest outdoor music festival in the country, which I've known about Ravinia for years, but I, I didn't, didn't know that. I didn't know it was the I've oldest seen, one. I've seen the B-52s multiple times at Ravinia, <laughs> and it was amazing. <laughs> Bonnie Wright, amazing. Yeah. Yes, I've been to Ravinia a lot. I used to live in close to Chicago, yep. so that's a fun yep. little drive. You can drink on the train. Oh, fun. Like the little double train track that gets okay. you to, they like let people have beer. It was like- Cute. Kind of like everybody that I go to Ravinia with is like, oh my gosh, you can like bring a little beer, Jill, because you can drink beer. And I was like, can I drink wine? Can I bring like yeah, wine exactly. glasses proper? Anyway, I, maybe that's not even legal. And they just kind of looked a blind eye. Yeah. Speaking of weight, I'm still, I'm still stuck on 1891. So this group, even though they weren't called CSO at the time. Yeah. So they've lived through... Like all the things, like all the, the world things. wars, the yeah. you know the Spanish Cuban Spanish American War. It was like holy cow. Yeah, the the Chicago literally since eighteen ninety one, and since nineteen nineteen, they've had a training orchestra, which is remarkable to me. So like they training have, wheels for it. It is. It's like whoa. for usually, um, you know, it's, stu- it's for students, just older students, to kind of train on what it's like to be a professional symphony orchestra musician. Now, are they like um, Minnesota, where they are full time and paid? Oh yeah, CSO. Yeah, mm-hmm. sweet. Yep. Yeah, they're compensated well for right. their. I mean, they're at the top of their craft, you yeah. know. I mean, it's it's amazing. They're amazing, amazing musicians. Um, so yeah, the Chicago, uh, the Civic Orchestra of Chicago has been around since 1919. Now there are other training orchestras in the country. There's one in Miami called the New World Symphony that's uh, run by the San Francisco conductor, Michael Tilson Thomas. There's one up in New York, uh, or rather in DC called something like um, Symphony of the Americas or something. So there are other training orchestras, but none of them are affiliated with an actual orchestra. So the Civic Orchestra in Chicago is the only one that's actually directly tied to the, which is an, a neat relationship. Yeah. And so do they prefer to, obviously they're auditioning a lot of people. Do they always try to include, if, if someone is obviously, if they're up to par, do they include these Students that, you know, possibly want to be, is that kind of the goal? You're sort of like the Barcelona football club where they're sort of, for soccer, where they're investing in these kids and then adolescents and Mm -hmm. then with the hopes that they're going to be groomed to play for Barcelona. Is that the idea? Um, Actually, symphony orchestras usually hold blind auditions. Uh, and so, and people don't even wear shoes, so you can't tell the gender of who's auditioning. It's been like that for decades for a lot of symphonies. So it's certainly possible that people from the civic orchestra play in the symphony and have gotten positions in the symphony, but I, I don't believe they get a special leg up okay. because of that. Okay. Yeah. 
All right, let's start off uh, by listening to one of the conductors who is kind of known as the reason the brass in the Chicago Symphony has a certain sizzle to them. And that is this George Schulte, who has all these Grammy Awards. So we're going to listen to the opening of a symphony by Mahler that we've never talked about, Mahler Five, And it starts with a really intense and tremendously difficult to play trumpet solo. Uh, so here you go. Here's the opening of Mahler Five, the Chicago Symphony from... 1971. I wish it sounded like that when I woke up in the morning. Like, <laughs> go get the day, Jill. <laughs> yep. Why did Schulte um, have that preference or or try to instill that that punch, that extra punch of the brass, do you know? I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that he had some of the world's most famous brass players in okay. his ensemble. And he just always wanted more from them, hmm. you know? And it, it almost to a fault, like critics would where's, get annoyed. And Where's he from? He's from Hungary. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. And came here, speaking of World War II, uh, ended up here more or less because of that, fled Hungary, um, ended up in the UK for a half a minute, and then Switzerland during the war, and eventually made his way over to the States. Um, and He's we'll like, talk I more want to settle Schulte. in the tundra. <laughs> Let's go to the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll talk more about Schulte in a little bit. But, um, but yeah, we, we largely have him, him to thank for that. And we'll talk about some of the individual brass players as well. Can we go, can we just listen to maybe like another 30 seconds of that piece? I feel like I didn't give it, give it enough time. Oh, yeah, sure. They're so good. Wow. <laughs> they That's are incredible. So good. Oh, I can't wait to talk more about it. But I want to drink some wine. Well, this is I feel like now my mind seems a little melodramatic after <laughs> All right. Well, so I wanted to I guess we'll just start at the beginning of of who Louis Dresner who they are. So they started in 1988. And Louis Dresner, uh Louis, the first part of that comes from Denise Louis, who she is from Burgundy, I believe, and she met her future husband, 
Joe Dresner, the late Joe Dresner, who was born in Long Island. They met when Joe, he was a student of American history, and then he got his master's or something in journalism. And sometime throughout that time period, he traveled through through France. And him and Denise married, and they had this fond notion of, like, just importing wine. At first, it was all about importing French wine to the United States, people that didn't have importers. And they paired up um, later with a gentleman by the name of Kevin McKenna, which anybody that knows importing in the United States, like those three names are sort of like Ford, Chevrolet, and Dodge of like the car (laughs) world. Like everybody, you can like those cars or not, but like everyone knows who they are, right? And just amazing palettes and amazing business minds. But nowadays we take for granted that people were into, are into like, Natural wine is a thing. And back then, when we think of, you know, they they were around for maybe, I don't know, it was shy of a decade when they realized that importing wine to the United States wasn't enough and that they needed to have certain standards because they realized that they liked those wines better. It wasn't like nowadays where it's sort of a political statement to be like, I like natural wine for the mm. people against, you know, agri- like mm-hmm. big monocrop agriculture companies and pharmaceutical. It's it's like back then it was, they were like, these wines taste better. Mm-hmm. They're healthier. Mm-hmm. Just get these wines. And back then during those times, you know, we think of what was being consumed and what was getting high points for wine. They were wines that were being scored by Robert Parker, wine spectator, wine advocate, and they were wines that promoted like a homogenization of flavor because if Emily gets 98 points and she's making her wine with a lot of oak and very big and bold and verging on sweet, even though everybody calls them dry wines, they were very full-bodied and all this stuff. And so then I want 98 points. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go learn all the techniques to make my wine taste like your wine. Right. And what ends up happening is this homogenization of flavor. And Dresner, they never really faltered from their their idea and their manifesto, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is pretty awesome. And so the reason why I'm choosing them as a benchmark for quality, meaning like it's a dead giveaway that your wine is flipping awesome. (laughs) Even if you may not like a certain style or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's a well-made wine is because if it says Cabernet Franc on the label, it's going to taste like flippin' Cabernet Franc. Mm -hmm. If it says... Today, we're going to drink a wine that on the back says Valpolicella or on the cork. It's going to taste like Valpolicella. Mm. They're benchmarks for region and style. They're very true in how they're made. And they're not, but they're not getting themselves into a corner by saying that all of our wines are natural, but they always are going to taste like what is on the label, you know, which, yeah. is, which is cool. So we can. We can taste now or we can listen to more music. What do you think? Um, let's taste quick. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So we'll, I'll just get it in your glass. So this is a wine from the Valpolicella region in Italy, which I will talk about in a moment. But Valpolicella is, um, just to give you an idea of where it is, we're in north, kind of eastern Italy. So we're east of Lago di Garda or Lake Garda. And we're in a place where if you've heard of the white wine, Suave, um, Valpolicella is very close to that. And this is a producer called Monte Dal Ora. Just to 
give you a little preview. When mm. you, and I will talk about the producer, of course, and all the goodies uh, about them and yeah. why they're included in the Louis Dresner portfolio in, in moments. But um, what do you think of the nose to scores and pores? Scores and pores. Look at the look at first the color. It's the color like the is beautiful. Super bright ruby. Yeah, ruby is a great way to like, describe it. Is literally the gemstone. Yeah, very tra- like you can Perfect. see through it. Yeah, or like one of those candy rings. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. It smells nice and fruity, like um, kind of cranberry y, maybe. Yeah, it does. It yeah, smells cran very, raspberry almost. Yeah, it smells very like it's going to be tart. Yeah. Like it doesn't smell yeah. heavy handed in any way. I and mean, there's no oak here. Right. Good. What about the, the palate? Mm. It is tart. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. Oh, it's really good, though. Yeah. It's, oh, wow. It's like pixie stick tart. Yeah, it's dry. Mm hmm. Um, Pretty light, light bodied, verging on mm-hmm. medium body, but pretty light. A lot of mm. red fruits dance around, like dried cherries, Long dried cranberries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fruity, but like in a really nice, like fun, sprightly, yeah, fun way. This is a yep. fun wine. And this is classic, like Valpolicella. Valpolicella, well, there's dismal Valpolicella <laughs> that tastes like pizza wine, that tastes like Montepulciano, like the region in the east okay. uh, or Abruzzo excuse me in the east it tastes like Chianti in the center west you know it could be from anywhere Valpolicella and then you have Valpolicella like this that tastes like what it should I'm not buying this and it's like all natty and fermenty and estery <laughs> but it's also not with new oak and harvested in November so it can be really ripe and big and unctuous it's like what it says it is. Yeah. And I'll talk more about the producer after we listen to some more music. Awesome. I'll just I'll talk about a couple of the different conductors that they've had. They've had 10 music directors over the course of those uh, years since 1891. And one of the most famous, as we've mentioned, George Schulte, he was there for 22 years from 1969 to 1991. The earlier years of those recordings are some of the brassiest you'll hear. For sure, out of all the Chicago Symphony, but even then, before the, before Schulte showed up, the the it was quite a powerful brass section. He kind of picked it up and ran with it, really, in a lot of ways. Okay. So if we uh, go to the music director who came just before Schulte, who is Raphael Kubelik. Kubelik was there from 1950 to 1953, and uh, if you listen to a little bit of, uh, we'll do a little side-by-side here, which is kind of fun, listening to the Chicago Symphony playing a piece, and then we'll listen to uh, another one of the big five that I mentioned, how there were these big five orchestras in the States. Oh, playing the same piece? Playing the same piece, yep. So let's listen to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra play the final movement of a very famous piece by Paul Hindemith called Symphonic Metamorphosis. This is the final movement, March, very brass-heavy piece, and this is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra in 1953, conducted by Raphael Kubelik. So this is, we're going to just compare this opening. So this is the same piece of music played by the Cleveland Symphony, led by George Zell, And that recording is from 1943, so this is 10 years earlier in Cleveland.
Oh yeah, it's way less dramatic. Like, in a way, you know? It's kind of more like, pretty, and even though it's that, it's like a little dainty, yeah. even though it's still got power. Yep. And it's got verve, it just doesn't have, like, drive. Yeah, like, it doesn't, to me, it's all about this laser sound. It's like literally a sizzle coming out of the end of these brass instruments yeah, in the Chicago Yeah, can we go back? Chicago, 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 yes, Chicago. Yes. So Cleveland, we, Cleveland, Cleveland, Cleveland. Yeah, let's Cleveland. use Cleveland then. Yes, it's like correct. Oh, it's beautiful. But it's, it, you're, I totally, I never, yes, yes I never it, knew that. It's a very, to me, it's a much more pillowy yes. sound. And, and that's one of the things that people say about the Chicago Symphony Brass is that it's this attack the attack of the note how we've talked about the initial ta you know that is it's it's lasers coming out the end of horns and stuff wow that's so, crazy so let's listen to a little bit a couple other places of this hindemith i think are really fun yeah, to hear please. the differences around the third minute, right? Third minute, 30 yeah, seconds, this is something? about three and a half minutes in, depending on the recording, but right now we're listening to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Yeah, it does. It has that sizzle at the end. I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Okay, so it's Cleveland. Yeah, so here's Cleveland with George Zell. And is it going to be a different... It sounds like it's a little bit higher or a little bit faster tempo, right? So a little is it bit be faster. A, instead of... Th that was around 3.30. Are we going to be listening a little bit A little later? earlier than that on this... Or, uh, yeah, excuse yep, me. A little bit earlier on this Cleveland one. Like, like they're just reaching the sizzle, but they're not playing through the sizzle, it seems yeah. like. You know, they're reaching that, like, fortissimo, that really loud, but they're yep. not, like... Can we go back and listen to just the... Yep. At the, what, 345 mark or something at the... Yeah. Uh, what, what... Chicago? One of the differences that I find kind of almost, like, shocking about this is that you can hear the French horns better in the Cleveland recording, which I love, um, because they kind of get buried by the trumpets in this Chicago recording, because there's a really famous ascending French horn line that happens toward the end of this sample we've been hearing, and you kind of can't hear it in the Chicago recording, mm. but it's because of that just in-your-face sizzle that, that the, the brass have. So yeah, here's, here's Chicago again.
looked like larger than life on many fronts. What's that? I'm sorry. I know you can't even hear me because it's all. I said uh, half the time we talk with big earphones on, and other times we don't. Yeah. So um, you know that that it's just like larger than life on all fronts. It's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And to think that George Schulte came after that. So that's a little about that. That comparison. That's cool. Yeah, we, that's we, really cool. Yeah, and you know, there's there's more too. And I'll talk about some of the actual brass players themselves in, in uh, the next the next time. So. And granted, I mean, obviously this is like Emily and I's taste preference, right? Because we're talking about like you won't go wrong by electing Louis Dresner as a wine you're gonna drink, or you know, you're not gonna go wrong by buying a recording of something that the Chicago Symphony Orchestra played. Yeah. Okay, granted, everybody's taste is different, So, but we're just recognizing, like, high-quality, you know, I don't want to say no frills, but, like, nobody's going to argue this, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think. I mean, people may or may not love Louis Dresner wines or may or may not love the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, but mm-hmm. personally, for their own personal preference, but we can't, like, deny quality. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. All right. So good. So good. So this producer that we're drinking, it is a combo. You have the husband and wife team, Alessandra Zantedeschi and her husband, Carlo Venturini. And they've been farming organically and biodynamically since the 90s, late 90s. They hmm. they started their winery in about 95 or 96, something like that. And in Valpolicella, I talked about what normally you'd get if you went and bought, you know, Secco Bertani, Valpolicella on the shelf. Hey, I used to love me some Secco Bertani back when I was like 20 and illegally drinking and had a little, you know, fake ID and whatnot. I say drinking, but I was like, I was learning. I was taking notes. Mm-hmm. Ask my ex-boyfriend. He will <laughs> say I was annoying in my little, my little notes and my little maps. But so you have like, you have like wines that are kind of mass marketed. And then you have wines like this that are definitely like pure in their execution. And what they've decided, how their MO here at Monte Dalora is they're doing all native ferments, hand harvesting, which check, check for Dresner. They're doing traditional methods of vinification, so no funny business in the cellar. <laughs> here they're using stainless steel to retain freshness and keep a clean wine, but they're also aging in concrete to allow for a little breathing. Who We don't need over-oaked Valpolicella. <laughs> Go buy a Cabernet if you want that from Cal- like a big Cabernet from California if you want that. Rendering a wine that's like 11.5% alcohol. And in mm. this place, they're really lucky because they have calcareous soils, so high chalk content. And what that means is you're able to really achieve if you're growing your grapes right and if you're harvesting at the right time when they're not too ripe, you're getting a wine with like pretty bracing acidity, which I would say matches the brass quite effectively <laughs> yes, yes it does. Um, in, in this comparison. But they're using, I showed you before, this Veronese, which so we're in the province of Verona, this Veronese pergola system to train their vines. And so anybody that hears pergola, they may think of like their backyard and this creep, these creeping vines coming up and over, you yeah. know, your, your table or your you know, table and chairs, whatever. Yeah. That is how they're training vines here. Granted, it's not over their table and chairs at their picnic, <laughs> but in a in a vineyard, they're like up and going mm-hmm. over the canopy 
to achieve optimum rightness and great airflow. What do you think when you look at that, yo? I think that is amazing. And I, it's seriously like there's wiring, right? Uh, What do you call the wire? The trellis? Yeah, Yeah, like a trellising wire, sure. So the wire is just literally overhead. So I imagine that when those are all full and ripe, there's literally like a canopy of leaves you could walk under, correct? Yeah, I mean, that would just be such a cool thing. And that's just to like, and so they do that to expose as much to the sun or? To expose as much as they can to the sun because this area was traditionally a bit cooler, but also for adequate airflow, they'll trim, you know, whatever leaves they need and bunches they need to be able to get airflow so they're not suffering from rot and mildew. Ah, okay. Um, How How tall is that? I'm sorry, how tall is that? Well, it depends on the producer, but you could drive a really small tractor under there. Like think of a riding lawn, lawnmower. You could okay. drive one of those under there and have give someone would have a good few feet between them and the top of the vines. For and sure. so that's how they hand prune it then by or they harvest. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do they, they reach would, that? They would. Oh, um, you're standing on. You're probably either standing up and reaching up. And they're hanging down, or you might need a little step ladder to get up there, depending. Yeah, um, yeah so it's definitely a little bit more labor intensive. Um, another factor could be that you know calcareous soils have a lot of mineral content. So depending on the composition of the soils where you are in Verona, this may provide a little bit more ease for nutrient flow. That could be a reason. Okay, I think it's more the former reasons I was speaking to. But one thing I wanted to mention here is that. This is also a very antiquated way to train vines Mm. because you would have your livestock roaming below. You'd have your chickens running around. You didn't have room to have this vineyard with nothing in it. (laughs) And then you had your animals over there. It used to be like everything was kind of all encompassed all in one. The person who I took um, one of my sommelier courses from back in the day would be like, don't you think that that doubles as a clothes hanger? It's like, (laughs) probably as well. But here they're using, also in traditional Dresdner fashion, they're using grapes that are native to the area. So Corvina is the main grape here. Do you want me to refresh your glass? Yes, please. Thank you. Corvina is the main grape at 50%. And then you've got Corvinone, which is also a traditional grape. You've got Rondinella, which can provide a lot of nice color. You've got Molinara, and then you've got Oseletta. And those are all grapes that you really don't find in too many places, you know, elsewhere in the world. And if they did, they probably brought their cuttings from the Valpolicella area because all these Mm. are native to this area. And they are most likely when you find Valpolicella, you're finding a combination of these grapes, but usually it's only Corvina, Rondinella, and Molinara. Those are the three that everybody... Okay. And, and, you know, sometimes two. But the fact that they add the Oseleta and the Corvinone is is traditionally what was done, but is not so common, you know, anymore. Oh, okay. So um, that's pretty awesome. And I don't know, I just think that they're a really cool producer making no-frills wine, beautiful. You know, this is just shy or just over 20 bucks, depending on where you are in the country. And I don't know, do you like it? I do. What do you want to eat with it? Ooh, I want to eat, I want to eat, the first thing that popped into my head was fish, but I don't know why. That seems weird. But I think what I want- was a fatty or white fish or something, light, maybe. lighter with it. I don't want like a steak with this. 
Oh, see, I don't want something lighter, but I want something I want something rich, mm. but maybe not a lot of animal protein. Like I would love a gnocchi. Like yeah. potato little yes. little potato yes. pasta dumplings, whatever. Yes. With a little butter yes. and sage and bacon, salt and pepper, and call it. And right. that just that with this wine, I think would be really pretty. Which, by the way, for our patrons, we will be including with this wine, you will be getting on the Mondays that we record as when we plan to send them out. We'll see if that happens. We're planning on it. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to happen. Yeah, it'll happen. But um, we're going to send out a recipe that's going to go with this wine. It's I can't be wait. Brilliant. It is going to be brilliant. Mm. Cheers to that. Yeah, I love how I love how bright this is. Yeah. It's just so, mm-hmm. you know, it's like 40 degrees. It's kind of a nice fall day here in Minneapolis, and this tastes like perfect for this weather. Yeah, it does. That's the first thing I thought when I took my first drink, how beautiful of a wine it is for a day like today. Mm. It's a beautiful fall day here in Minneapolis. Yeah, and yeah. so all of those, whether it's grape rattles, practices, the fact that they're organic and biodynamic, and just those words, I don't mean to throw them in there because you know, Dresner isn't saying we're an organic biodynamic importer. Right. But the fact that Alessandra and Carlo are into the health of their soils and want the best for their soils, you know, ticks that box for great flavor in the book of Dresner. Mm. So amazing. Cool. Yeah, no, it's super cool. And it's that's one of those like kind of tricks of the trade, right? Well, like dead giveaways. It's like people want to know that. They want to know what to look for when they go into a wine shop and there's 700 different wines to choose from. Oh, well, look for Louis Dresner and then grab one of those. See what you think. Focus on Louis Dresner for a while. See what you think of their wines. It's such a great idea. I love and, it. And you're going to get a lot of variety in price points too because what I is what's hard to find when you start getting great quality wines like this is, you know, you start to move away from the value portion of the program. And like, I have a lot of friends who don't spend, you know, 20 bucks on wine and up. They spend 10 to 20 Mm -hmm. and 20 is like a special occasion. And what's great is Dresner has realized that and they've found some producers in their book that are $14.99. You know, I have a wine at my shop, $11.99 and it's delicious. And it's, you know, just something that you look at it and it says where it's from, Southeastern France. It, the grapes, if you look it up, you're like, yep, it tastes like that, that, and that from that place mm. and that price point. It's like all the things. Yeah. It's perfect. That's wonderful. Music, music, more, music. More Chicago. I wanted to just briefly drop some of the names of these horn players that I grew up hearing about when I was a kid. And, and have, I mean, just legendary names in, in the world of of brass players, <laughs> and some of them are still alive and playing at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I mean, some people play in a symphony for their entire lives, and, you know, there's no thing that says you have to retire at 65 when you're a musician, so some players are in their 80s and still playing. Getting it. That's yeah, so awesome. Yeah, they're just getting it hardcore, playing like that, right? So uh, one of them who's still in the orchestra, Jay Friedman, he's been in the orchestra since 1962. Holy cow. He's been the principal trombonist in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra since 1964. He's 81 years old. So wait, is he kind of like the Tom Brady where like, do people like not like him because he's so good and he just has all this like, you know, 
he's got all these accolades and he just whatever? Or do people love him because he's like a he's just I don't know what people think about okay. him. Okay. <laughs> I, I just wondered I wondered if like people with that much tenure in a in a orchestra or a symphony. Yeah. It can be a problem in symphonies, definitely. The whole tenure thing okay. can be a sticking point for, Interesting. for certain people in certain symphonies. Round the world. That's yes. I think I think it's awesome as long as someone isn't just hanging out in the symphony just yeah. to hang out in the symphony. Yeah. Like, like, you know, they have that tenure so nobody wants to fire right. them or they don't want to quit because they're making ninety grand a year and traveling More sometimes. Than that. Yeah. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, that's so cool. He's still playing. He's still playing. Whoa. 81. Yep. Whoa. Uh, Gene Picorni is the uh, two principal tuba player. He's been there since 1989, which is quite a long time. Um, as far as other people who, who were a part of that sound, particularly in the 60s, very famous horn player named Dale Clevenger uh, from 1966 up till 2013 played with the... Um, uh, Chicago Symphony, there was uh, probably one of the most famous brass players. Well, they all are. Uh, there was Arnold Jacobs. Arnold Jacobs was a tuba player from 1944 to 1988. So then Gene Picorni took over for Arnold Jacobs. But Arnold Jacobs was an amazing man and v- did wonders for brass players around the world by developing uh, a very natural breathing technique. He had mm. a lot of lung issues. And so he had to, as a tuba player, learn how to breathe in the most efficient way possible. And so he just learned a lot about um, diaphragm and just unrestricted breathing and breath flow because it can Mm. be, when you're putting an instrument up to your face and blowing, you can, you know, what you're blowing out is coming at a rate that it's it's a complicated process. Does he have a fashion line? Because Arnold Jacobs sounds like he either has a fashion line or like a brand of, like I don't know, some some sort of food stuffs, like organic, like Annie's organic mac and cheese. It sounds yeah. like that, like Arnold Jacobs. No, I mean he had of, books and stuff, but okay, yeah. Um, and then from, I love how Emily just sort of like no, Jill. Yeah, so, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm on a roll. I'm re- <laughs> so. <laughs> So then there's the trumpeter Bud Herseth, Adolph Bud Herseth, who was the principal trumpeter from 1948 until 2001. And Bud Herseth is who you heard on that Mahler recording at the beginning of that Mahler recording. Okay. Really difficult thing. And one of my favorite things about Bud Herseth is he didn't... A lot of these guys like Dale Clevenger, for example, uh, Arnold Jacobs, for example, made a lot of recordings of like solo horn works and solo tuba works. So they did recordings on the side. Yeah. Bud Herseth didn't really do a lot of that because he just, he would say, you know, a trumpet concerto or a trumpet sonata just does not move me in the way that playing Mahler does or playing Beethoven. Can we like, because you can Google the conductors we've talked about, you know, Mm -hmm. you can Google obviously the um, Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Can we Google these players and do they have like, whether it's on Spotify or Google and you then, you know, that gets you to Wiki or something like, can people, these are esteemed musicians that people know. Okay. People can like look more into it to find out more of what they've done because that's super fun to do. Yeah, no, definitely. hundred percent. There's all kinds of recordings out there of all these. Clevenger? Is this one of Dale their? Clevenger was the horn player. So yeah. like you come home to your like 
honey or roommate or whomever and be like, I'm going to have, we're going to have a Clevenger night today. And people are like, what? <laughs> we're going to listen to Dale Clevenger. We're going to listen to all the Mozart horn concertos recorded by Dale Clevenger. Yes. But yeah, those are just legendary names, and and Chicago was kind of the place to go if you wanted to learn how to play brass, you know, orchestral brass. I mean, it's just such a sound and such a legendary place to be. One of the important things about playing brass in the Chicago Symphony, they all play the same kind of horn. So that's another thing that's unique about the ensemble. If you remember several, several episodes back, we talked about the Vienna Philharmonic and how they use special instruments, which they do. In Chicago, all the brass players play on what are called Lewis horns, and these are horns that are manufactured in Chicago. And so that's cool. one of the kind of unifying factors. Oh my gosh, we the, have we yeah. have we have homework here at Scores and Pores. We need to <laughs> find out if we can interview this trombonist, which will be hilarious because <laughs> let's see if he knows how to work some technology and is like he's a hundred. I'm years sure old or he whatever. knows more than you think. <laughs> yeah, well, for uh-huh. sure. And it sounds like we need to like get in touch with this horn mm-hmm. situation because that's amazing. Yeah. Which, by the way. We are referencing now a show that was probably 20 shows ago. We're in our 60th, 70th episode, something like that. So if you've listened to that, you owe us money, people. Yeah. <laughs> start, start donating to the class. This podcast is thousands of dollars a year to produce. So uh, help us out, people. Seriously. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, yeah, Lewis Horns, all made in Chicago. That's pretty cool. Super cool. Yeah. So let's listen to him, shall we? Yeah, please. So this is a, a good example of some other conductor coming in and guest conducting. And still just the brass are just raging away. Um, this is an absolutely fantastic recording live, by the way, of Shostakovich Seven, which was known as the Leningrad Symphony. And this is Leonard Bernstein came to conduct the CSO many times, and this one was uh, recorded. So this is the third movement, portions of the third movement of Shostakovich 7, Chicago Symphony. Leonard Bernstein at the helm. Now we're at about the ninth minute here. And this is the third movement, the adagio, just for anybody that's in the first movement at the ninth minute and being like, this doesn't sound like that. (laughs) Third movement, yep. Well, it sounded like they were having a hard time keeping up there for a second. <laughs> wow. I mean... Pomp and circumstance par excellence. Plus, it's like 
Bernstein. I mean, come on. Yeah. Amazing. It goes on in true Shostakovich style. <laughs> there are actually a lot of, we're hearing a lot of dead giveaways in here for Shostakovich's style as well. But <laughs> but uh, it's it's just amazing Ooh, to hear that. Give people a twofer, why? Oh, well, um, he he uh, uses that kind of up in the strings that you heard there. Uh-huh. And uh, he he also loves that dun da dun da dun da dun rhythm, but you hear that in so a wait, lot of do that again. Dun do that dun, again. Dun 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 So we're like yeah. Shostakovich. <laughs> Shostakovich. Yeah. I love that. I really like hearing, because my brain, how it works for wine, you know, if you didn't have a gazillion things to compare it to, you wouldn't really know why that one thing is important or this collection of things to symbolize a vintage, because you need to be able to compare 500 2017 Chenin Blancs from California before you can be like, oh, this is what that is, right? Maybe not 500, maybe 80. Lots, But still a lot. And so with... My brain, the way it works, if I just heard the Chicago Symphony Orchestra one time with one symphony, I would be like, well, yeah, that's some punchy brass. But until I hear it multiple times and then compared to other things, yeah, um, I, it doesn't really ring true. I wanted to just very briefly, I kind of saved the best for last in this one um, because, you know, when I started to get into natural wine a long time ago, and not to put Dresner in that camp, but... It was really hard to find an importer that was, you know, this was before the days of Selection Massal and, you know, Zevrovine and all these important names and Natty Wine. And I think Dresner gave people something to believe in that, you know, wasn't necessarily dogmatic, but in a way a lot of people thought it was because they were always so good and they were always doing quote-unquote, good things in the cellar and, you know, good practices in the vineyard. And so I mentioned, made mention of the manifesto um, that was published in 1999, so about 10 years after Louis Dresner was was founded. And the the just a brief thing, I'm going to read verbatim, and I'll tell you then when I start to paraphrase, but it says, Louis Dresner's selections is a portfolio of over 100 vignerons hailing from France, Italy, Germany, Portugal, Slovenia, and Chile. We are a partnership of Denise Louis, a native Burgundian, Joe Dresner, and Kevin McKenna. Collectively, we spend nearly nine months a year in Europe working with our growers and selecting wines for importation to America. We have no brands. We are not looking for them. We do have a group of often fanatical growers who are doing their best to make wines that are original because they are honestly crafted. They might seem old-fashioned, but in the present context, it is almost revolutionary. There are no gobs. No exaggerations, no over this and over that. We don't have fruit bombs. What we do have is a group of growers who work their vines and make their wines with honesty, passion, and humor. In that sense, in all caps, the brand, is the convergence of these crazy growers and their American importers working together to produce and market natural products that follow several principles. 
The following techniques and guiding principles are what we believe in winemaking with integrity and respect for the traditions of the native region. This is fine winemaking at its purest and most fundamental level. So here's where I'm going to start to, I'm going to read the bullet points, but I'm not going to read because they do go into explaining all this for people. Wild yeast, hand harvesting, low yields, natural viticulture, no or minimal chaptalization, non-filtration, non-interventionalist winemaking, enjoyment, exclamation point. And then they say we are not fans of wines that are over-manipulated, over-flavored, over-acidified, over-harvested, over-filtered, over-oaked, overrated, over-the-top. And I think that just literally leaves a lot of room for them to not back themselves into a corner, and yet every single wine in their portfolio tastes of that, which I think is great. And one quick thing before we cheers to scores and pours is Joe Dresner passed away some time ago of brain cancer, and it was a sad thing in the wine world. I remember being, like, devastated. And he... You know, a lot of a lot of folks he did he was kind of cynical and he had this like cantankerous type of personality, but very humorous in spite of a lot of, you know, hardship that he went through. And in the end, he was like a great writer and his son Jules, now he was young too, he was sixty when that happened. His son Jules is now kind of at the helm trying to work with with the growers and Big shoes to fill, obviously. Jules, I think, is doing a great job. But he was quoted in some article. It might may have been with the New York Times or something, but he said, it's a taste and sensory preference. It's not being a purist or that we follow this guru or that guru, but that we feel that the wines taste better. And I think that that just sums up everything I just said in two sentences, which is amen to that. Cheers to that. To Dresner, to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Discourse and pours. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And you'll also find a link to buy hoodies and t-shirts at patreon.com slash scores and pours. We are on Instagram, at Scores and Pours, and we encourage you to send us messages of all kinds. Any criticism, constructive, positive feedback, questions for us, show ideas, you name it. Please consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Ciao.